I definitely do focus on runners and I think um it was just kind of this thing that smacked me up the side of the head a couple years into my career where I was like I'm a runner I've been a runner for a long time and I feel like I understand them really well mm -hmm. and now I have this other knowledge base behind me of my PT degree and my clinical experience and the other things that I'm learning it would be silly not to merge these things together because I love running. Um, I love being in front of runners because I will absolutely talk about any of their chosen topics. Did you know that we each lose a different amount of electrolytes in our sweat, largely based on our genetics? That means that there's no one-size-fits-all perfect sports drink for everybody because we each have unique needs. That's why we at Solpre developed the Sync Hydration System, a series of sports drinks to help match you with the personal level of electrolytes that you need. If you'd like us to help you match with your perfect sports drink, go to solpre.com slash hydration dash quiz. That's solpre.com slash hydration dash quiz. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has his doctorate in physical therapy, which you might guess he's a physical therapist. Um, he has an orthopedic specialty. You can find him on Instagram at long run physio. Welcome to the show, Ryan Wetterson. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate it, man. So um, before we got going, uh, so we'll give a special shout out to a mutual friend of ours, uh, Mr. Ian Talbot. Um, <laughs> so Ian, if you're listening, thanks, thanks for joining us. I know Ryan was sent you a, a text of, uh, I guess the image of us <laughs> as we, before we got going, um, it's so it, it, for you, the listener, if you're not Ian, um, this episode is probably going to be full of, uh, talking about weird Midwest cultural things. Um, because, uh, I'm from the Midwest, Ryan's from the Midwest, who's now transplanted to Colorado. Um, so we'll probably commiserate a little bit about just the odd things that happen in the Midwest in, in regards to our peculiarities and um, how everybody seems to move out west to Colorado that doesn't want to stay. So, um, so Ryan, I guess like that leads me into the, the, the big question. I think you, you grew up in rural Kansas and then now you live in Colorado. To me, that seems like an easy switch. But, you know, why, why didn't we get you to, like, stay in Kansas City? How did you end up in uh, Colorado, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I'm from, I'm from Hutchinson originally um, and ended up at Regis for a PT school. Um, and it was here for three years. And I moved back to the Midwest to Wisconsin for a residency for a year. I froze my butt off and realized the weather is miserable, except for, like, 17 days of the year and so i moved back to denver and i've been back here since 2013 so it was just too good of a place to to stay away from see that's always my concern i mean besides the logistical um headache of trying to move to a different state um my concern is that i'm going to freeze my butt off if i move to colorado <laughs> now you're going to freeze your butt off a little bit here in kansas city anyway but just I assume it's going to be colder more. So, so am I missing something? Is it, is it a matter of, um, is it like the Arizona thing where they go, it's a dry heat or you go like, it's a dry cold. Is there something like that going on? Uh, for the sake of keeping more people from moving to Colorado, let's tell everybody that it's freezing in the winter. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. You don't want to do it. Don't don't move here. Um, I don't drink beer on a patio on a sixty degree day in January ever. That never <laughs> happens. Um, everybody just stays buckled up inside. I mean, uh, you know, it sounds like the place to. I mean, I I envision it as basically, um, you know, and I've I've been to Colorado in the wintertime, so I I have some idea. But in my mind, when I try to kind of nix those memories and realities i go oh it just everything's covered in snow everybody must be walking you know get get their poles and their skis out or just like skiing around town because it's cold all the time and that's just it's a very active place so i just yeah. assume like everyone's constantly in like a lycra tight outfit moving around town on skis 
I think some people are in their lycra all the time. Um, that's that's not me. Um, and no, it's not like South Park. It's not like snowy all the time. Denver's Denver's pretty tempted, so, so it's it's a it's an excellent place to live. Nice. Um, so I guess let's back up a little bit. Um, I, before we got recording, I was asking you about, you know, did you compete collegiately? Like trying to figure out more about your background, obviously, catcher, doctor of physical therapy, but you didn't start there. I mean, there's a number of years of living leading up to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think on your, uh, your website, you know, you talk about living in rural Kansas, being outside all the time. Um, were you, were you just a kid obsessed with sports? Like how, how does this, how does this progression kind of happen? Yeah, I think, um, growing up in any rural area, you just naturally spend a lot of time outside and, um, because the weather in the middle of Kansas can be so miserable at many months of the year, you just figure out how to adapt your activity to that weather. So, in the winter, it was always basketball. In the spring and fall, it was track and cross country. In the summer, you just try to survive. So I was a, I was very much a kid obsessed with sports and, and whatever I could get my hands on when when I was young. And so I think it's um, it's those sports that led me to just be attracted to PT as a profession because it's a profession of movement, and that is something that I'm constantly doing. And I my body and mind and soul freak out when I don't move. So it's just a natural fit for me as a, as a profession. I think as I've talked to a number of people over the years now, however many episodes we're in, I think you're going to be like 163 or 164 or something like that. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of different like PTs or physiologists and one of the responses I get is uh, like people go into this field or this kind of field um, because they wanted to be a pro athlete, but didn't quite have the physicality to do, do it. Um, does that apply to you? Did you ever have, you know, dreams no. of being professional or anything? No, I mean, I probably had daydreams. I, I you know, <laughs> I was a huge, I still am a huge college basketball fan. So mm-hmm. I would you know, games with myself in the driveway of like pretending I was playing for Roy Williams, that kind of thing growing yeah. up, but never had the capacity to do that, um, you know, and, and never, never knew the, the level of work that it was actually required to get there. So um, just that was not me. I was just a kid obsessed with sports and loved playing and loved moving. I wasn't anticipating uh, making a living at it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, I think the tough thing and maybe why I get that response. And it was originally, um, gosh, I'm going to forget his name now. Uh, researcher from one of the university of California schools I was talking with, um, who, who said that. And, um, I think you get that response in, in part because of this, like, almost like cultural imperative of like, I mean, how many sports movies do we have that are like, filled with triumphant music and it's just like if you just work hard enough you come together as a team like you'll you know overcome all odds and it's like obviously that doesn't encompass the whole of the reality of the situation um so i just wonder how many people get caught up in that uh zeitgeist so to speak or that i the idea um it sounds like you kind of avoided those like delusions of grandeur i guess i'll call them (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not gonna say I didn't have delusions of grandeur, but they, <laughs> they, were, they were very, very short-lived. Um, I, I can appreciate that genetics uh, only takes you so far in a silo, and hard work only takes you so far in a silo. Uh, it's got to be a combination of both, and you know, I, I probably didn't fully appreciate either when I was when I was growing up to, to push myself hard enough, to be quite honest. I mean, that's all right. I, I think it's fair to kind of have a fair, honest assessment of where you were and who you are and where you're going. So um, so I do want to ask you about, it, it does seem like, you, you know, a lot of the content you put up is centered around running. Um, obviously, we talked about you have 
some running background or uh, were recruited to possibly run in college. Didn't end up doing that. But um, why, you know, is it just a matter of there's a plurality of people that run that you want to focus on that? Or, or is there something in particular that would draw you to continue kind of focusing on that into your career? Yeah, I definitely do focus on runners. And I think um, it was just kind of this thing that smacked me up the side of the head a couple years into my career where I was like, I'm a runner. I've been a runner for a long time. And I feel like I understand them really well. Mm -hmm. And now I have this other knowledge base behind me of my PT degree and my clinical experience and the other things that I'm learning it would be silly not to merge these things together because I love running. Um, I love being in front of runners because I will absolutely talk about any of their chosen topics all day. Um, so I, it was almost just a, a, a natural relationship that took me a couple of years to come around to in my career. One thing, so if you go, um, to Ryan's website, longrunphysio.com. He's got a few blog posts, not super active, but some very important ones. Um, and like, so I've talked about this um, for you, the listener. If you aren't on the YouTube page, you don't know. I do a show just where we talk about running um, every Tuesday and Thursday. I've talked about this before, but Phil often asks about like runner's knee, knee pain, or is running going to destroy my knees? And you've got a post about this. So I, um, you are more... Uh, credentially qualified to talk about this than I am. So I kind of like to hear from you about running knees, knee problems. Um, if, you know, I've been running for 20 plus years now, um, am I going to not have any knees here soon? Uh, just wa walk me through, I guess, what running means for knees and, and the considerations there. Yeah. I, I think that post came out of just some musings about some things that I still hear and some things that I used to hear in regards to what running does or doesn't do to your knees. Um, and one of the comments I make in that blog post is my grandpa used to say, you know, especially when I started running, I was like 12 or 13 or 14. He's like, running will ruin your knees. And here's this, you know, 70 plus year old guy at the time telling me that my knees are going to be junk because I'm running. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to keep running anyway, because I feel fine now. Um, you know, fast forward 20 some years uh, to where I'm into the, my profession, I know more. I think it's important for athletes, especially newer runners to the scene who probably hear some of these older adages that have just hung on to understand that no running is probably not going to ruin your knees. Um, there's some research to suggest that just like moderate volume running over long periods of time is not going to strongly impact the uh, you know, cartilage changes in your knees. It's not going to cause them to um, change any faster than if you were just a non-runner um, with, a, with a healthy knee. Then you start to get into some much higher and longer sustained volume so, you know, if we're talking about professional ultra runners or just even even recreational ultra runners who will do like multiple ultras a year, that type of volume over longer periods of time, that does start to have a little bit of an effect. But even that isn't necessarily so strong of an effect that I would suggest that someone not do it. Um, that partially answers your question, I think. Well, I, I mean, I, I kind of just left it open to you to talk about whatever you wanted to regarding the knee, but I, I just, it's one of those things where I think about, I, I guess I've always been strongly interested in, the, are there like optimal biomechanics and like what leads to particular injuries? Can you adjust those things? Are they inherent in somebody's like structural makeup that they just are going to move in a certain way? like all, all those kind of things. And just, I mean, if you go and, you know, I don't know how you decide on your, your blog post, but often when we're trying to decide like what videos should I be making, not the podcast, but the running videos. I mean, we're looking at like search engine volume, like what questions are people asking? And 
will running ruin my knees is like way up there. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> because it's so it's so perpetuated that like it it's gonna do it. It's gonna destroy your knees, and it makes me think about two things. One, um, this is not I don't think within your or my lifetime, but there used to be the idea that like working out too much was bad because you were going to run out of heartbeats. Like you only had so many heartbeats in a lifetime. And if you used them all up, then you were going to die sooner. Right. Well, I mean, we, we know that's bullshit at this point, right? But it's, it was repeated and repeated. Um, And then it it makes me think about in another one of your posts, you're talking about um, what to do about like IT band syndrome. Um, And you remark how, research can take you know a minimum of 10 to 15 years to kind of catch up to it is this idea efficacious like does this idea have legs what evidence do we have to support that this is a good or a bad means of therapy in your particular case um but I just think about how slow things turn and when you're talking about like the longitudinal effects of running on knees over a lifetime it's going to take a minute probably to gather enough data from people getting like starting at a young age and then getting into their 70s like it's it's going to take maybe at minimum 50 years um for us to really have that nice data if you can actually even follow people that long right i i think with what what data we do have it's at least in my world, which is, you know, very tiny relative to the rest of the world, it's pretty well understood that running will not wreck your knees, nor will exercise and nor will you run out of heartbeats. Right. right. That's, that's not, a, it's not a thing. Um, you're not going to just run out of heartbeats because you're exercising. In fact, quite the contrary, you might gain more heartbeats. Um, but there are a lot of with respect to the knees and running, there are so many variables that go into um, consideration for how running does affect your knees. Like, yes, the mechanical factors are always a concern. And one of the most common questions that I get um, in the clinic or just, you know, via email or, you know, I'm a heel striker. Is a, is a heel strike going to affect my knees more positively or negatively than a mid or forefoot strike? Um, And to answer that question, it's no, it's not going to strongly affect your your knee changes um, one way or the other. What matters most with any type of foot strike pattern at all, whether it's heel, mid or forefoot, is that your foot lands mostly underneath your body, right? I, I think People in in our running world understand that, but the general public isn't. Again, there's this catch up. There's this lag time. Um, the general public it isn't always aware of that type of knowledge yet. Um, so you can strike with any part of the foot that you want. It doesn't matter so long as your foot lands mostly underneath your body. Then you're going to be striding with pretty solid mechanics for the most part, and your knee isn't going to take a massive. Um, damaging hit from a heel strike that lands underneath your body now go ahead go ahead ahead. no you're fine like conversely if you're if you are a heel striker and you're you're over striding as they say or you're you know you're striking the ground well ahead of your body then that can produce some other effects you know not certain if that would be necessarily at the foot of the ankle or at the knee or at the hip um, but you place yourself at greater risk for injury, regardless of your foot strike pattern, if you strike too far in front of your body. Well, I think I think that's kind of the the source of concern is that if you overstride, you're almost always going to be heel striking. So then I think that's where people go. It's kind of like the whole uh, square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square situation where like. If sure. you're overstriding, you're likely heel striking. But if you're heel striking, you're not necessarily overstriding. But again, talking about like kind of specialist knowledge versus generalist knowledge, um, I think that point gets missed. And I think a lot of people do overstride because they they're trying to reach and make their stride longer for some reason, whatever reason they've gotten in their head that they need to do this, versus like 
pushing out of the back with propulsion. They're like reaching forward to try to have these big strides. And then the other part um, that I think people miss uh, is that like the biomechanical changes that happen in that like plant position changes that happen as speed increases. So mm-hmm. like Mr. Talbot, if you're still with us with your personally legendary sub two performance, I remember I was talking with Ryan as we, uh, this is for the 800 meter for anybody else that's not Mr. Talbot. Um, you know, he's running basically on his forefoot, like the whole half mile, because he's sprinting his butt off, you know, like he's not heel striking. He's, it's it just because of the way you're, the speed that you're going, the biomechanics at that point, you know, your heel may not even touch the ground that much in that particular speed. But like, same guy, if we say, go run the 5,000, he'll go, why I hate that. But then his feet will probably have a different biomechanical striking position because he slowed down his pace. So like, that's the variability of striking position and like, but like ground contact, I think is you definitely start to lose some people because, you know, we're speaking about, at least at the time, collegiate runner. Um, uh, Talbot, hopefully you're still in good shape, but you're probably not in sub two 800 shape anymore. Um, but just somebody that's in that good shape has the capability of that range of motion versus like, let's say average Joe who maybe runs 10 minute miles. Well, they're probably not going to progress in speed to such a degree that it's they're going to have that entire like foot contact change so then it becomes more of a discussion of are you planting underneath you versus in front of you right yeah biomechanically um distance running and sprinting are very different they're very different and and the energy systems that you use metabolically are different and your strike patterns are different and and the muscle um sequencing patterns are different you know when you use your calves versus your glutes and your hamstrings and your quads and all that stuff so it's all very very different and and it should look different hopefully to produce a different strike pattern like you're saying one of the things that i i talk about and i want to ask you in terms of uh whether this actually makes sense because i talk about it and i think it does um but i always like to do it uh go and fact check myself so thinking about biomechanical differences between sprinting and distance running, uh, especially as you go slower, you have, um, I'll say like like that hip knee angle in distance running, you don't really get above like 45 degrees. So like versus sprinting, like you're getting much closer to 90 because you need that full power push off. And one of the things I talk about um, with like injury prevention for distance runners is doing, you know, strength training that increases like full, full range of motion because during running, we only use that partial, which I believe given the repetitive nature, if you do the partial and then aren't strong through the full, uh, you know, I guess flexion is the word I'm looking for. I think hopefully you'll correct me here in a second. Um, that increase your injury risk. So it's something I talk about, but again, I, you're the authority. So I want to check in with you, whether my brain's on the right track or whether I've, I've gotten off somewhere. So you're asking in terms of range of motion of the knee itself. <clears throat> so just, so let's say like, uh, like not necessarily the knee, but just like full. So full range of motion for use of hamstrings, quads, um, you know, your major movers in running mm-hmm. that, that plant, position starts at say like 45 degrees maximum and comes down versus like you technically can bring it up to 90 but you're not going to do that during distance running so like doing strength training that would maybe if say if you squat you're going to get much closer to 90 even though you're not using that during running using that as like an effective means of kind of prehab so to speak yeah so you're speaking of like using strength training to um produce and and help maintain certain ranges of motion that aren't utilized with distance running correct as a means of preventive maintenance yeah 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 i'm a huge proponent of that there's there's two sides to that coin um with strength training 
I try to take my athletes through as many running specific movements as possible. Right. And, and what I mean by that is we're loading tissues through ranges that are specific to running, whether it's the ankle, the knee or the hip, or even the trunk. So we're loading and running specific ranges. In addition to that, I think it's very wise just as trying to produce a, a holistic athlete, regardless of their ability level, doesn't matter if they're recreational or a pro, but to produce a holistic athlete, it's wise to work through large ranges of motion because that will coach your brain, which will coach your tendons and your ligaments and your muscles and your cartilage to accept and be willing to produce that range of motion on a more uh, more available basis. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the, I'll, I'll call it a trend, but I don't really mean that in the sense that like it's it's a fad. Um, but one of the trends I've seen that, you know, grow in the last decade is more, um, more emphasis on like eccentric loading of muscles as a means of maintenance and, and prevention. Whereas like, say, I, I remember a time in college when I got hurt and then um, for a long story short, was basically told to continue running and kind of ran myself lopsided like you can see a physical difference in the size of my legs and I need to go through rehab and it was basically all concentric loading. So let's, let's do hamstring curls, let's do squats, all that kind of stuff, but really no eccentric loading. And that got me through and got me back to competing and all that kind of stuff. But I think about, you know, kind of the, it all, it almost feels like the complete opposite approach. Like let's, let's take you through like holding power through the like full extension you know, doing glute bridges and uh, I, don't, I, I never know what the Nordic something, I can't remember, you'll tell me what they are. You, I, you know what I'm talking about. The Nordic curls? Yes, um, which are which are difficult. I've been doing those lately. Um, so can you talk to me about the, I guess, importance and the place that eccentric loading takes into, uh, you know, a runner's life, both in injury prevention, maintenance, rehab, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think that type of loading. So for those listening, there's different ways to, to load tissues, right? You're talking about eccentric loading versus concentric versus isometric. And they all, we can go into those definitions later. Um, but with eccentric loading, you're basically loading as in a very general sense for the lay listener, you're loading and lengthening the muscle at the same time. So imagine your, your quads going downstairs, right? That's a loading and lengthening activity for the quads. And that's an eccentric activity. Running is rife with eccentric activity from start to finish. And that's exactly the way in which we should train. That doesn't mean or concentric contractions and isometric contractions don't have a place. They absolutely do. Um, but if you're looking to grow muscle tissue, improve global strength, even improve range of motion, since we touched on that earlier, um, and have greater capacity of your muscles just in general, eccentric loading is where a lot of that stuff lies. Um, that's a type of loading that, you know, for someone who is unfamiliar with regular strength training, they probably need to be worked up to because it's pretty it can be pretty taxing depending on how you dose it um but it holds a massive amount of value for any runner at any point i think what makes things difficult for let's say the lay listener the you know the the listener that's here with us is just like there are schools of thought which have kind of risen and fallen away like and sometimes things go through cycles of like you know this is popular and then that's popular and so like you get this sub niche of like advice for runners and then you get like all just to pick on them not really pick on them but you get like men's health magazine and you get that, like that look going on like the advice for getting six-pack abs and doing all these things and 
they may not necessarily even be applicable to your situation if like you're trying to maximize running speed or or endurance or whatever i think just the the trouble we run into is like so many mixed messages in terms of specificity to people um which is why i kind of ask you some of these questions to try to at least get some of that information out in terms of specifics for runners um because there are so many of us and and how you deal with like keeping yourself healthy basically um i i preach consistency like consistency breeds results if you get injured you're no longer consistent you gotta take time off and you gotta rehab and um, i've had my fair share of injuries over the years um so uh as a general question is there a or a top like set of like most common injuries you see in people that you work with in runners just by the data and this is a little bit ironic considering the the prior conversation we just had but by the data the knee is the most injured joint in runners um and that's largely due to a few factors um Number one is uh, poor training, um, and that that can be defined as either being inconsistent or under training or over training that can create the the knee issue. Um, also, incomplete what I call incomplete mechanics. You know, if there's something with the stride or or what have you, we can dive into that all we want, but something mechanical going on with their gait that places undue stress on the knee that could be distributed somewhere else. Those are the most common reasons. So nobody's getting a traumatic knee injury from running, right? Unless you're on the trails and, you know, something weird happens. Um, it's always this accumulation of multiple factors coming to a head that creates the irritation at the knee. So that's the most common complaint that I typically get from runners. Otherwise, um, I forget what the data says, but my most common that I see other than knees is, is hip stuff. And, and also for the same reasons, um, under overtraining or incomplete training, uh, and that's a whole other kettle of fish to discuss, um, and also incomplete mechanics, those kinds of things. Those are very, very common themes of injuries that are, that are seen. So those are the most common things that I see. Now, with with the hips, um, anecdotally, I know that I've had coaches talk about that's typically more of a woman's problem um, just because their hips are structured differently uh, after they go through puberty than men's. Does that line up with what you see? Um, I would agree that just, again, anecdotally in the clinic, I do see more women with hip issues, but I also see guys with hip issues. So I, mm -hmm. I, I well, it's definitely not, it's definitely not, they don't have a, a, no. a monopoly on it. I know that, no, that does all. it skew that direction is all I'm trying to figure out. It seems like it does. It seems like it does. And I, I can't speak to the data on like incidents of hip injuries in female runners versus male runners. I'm positive that it's out there. I'm just not aware of it at this moment. So Anecdotally, I do see more women with hip issues than men. Okay. That kind of leads me to a little bit of an overarching question that I have. And I kind of debate, depending on which kind of new study I see or, or what information I get. Um, and that is, should you try to change people's biomechanics? This is one of my favorite topics to, <laughs> to get feisty about. Um, so my professional bias is to change people's biomechanics as minimally as possible to produce the, the greatest possible effect, if that makes sense. I am really really trying very hard not to mess with people's strike patterns. So if someone comes to me and says, Hey man, I'm a, I'm a heel striker. What do you got for me? You know, cause everybody demonizes heel striking or, or some people do. Um, 
you know, I'm trying really hard not to actively shift that person to a mid or forefoot strike because that is just an entirely different program cognitively for that person. And will you're opening Pandora's box as a clinician there that that is less productive for the individual who is in front of you. Um, that being said, there are rare occasions, and I've been doing this for 10 years, I've probably changed someone's strike pattern or coached someone into a different strike pattern five times in my career, maybe less. Um, the, the occasion to change someone's strike pattern is just not very frequent at all. Um, and when, when I have encountered that, it's because I've, I've tried to uncover everything else that just hasn't yielded the result that we were looking for. And so I go, okay, it's time because this is the last thing available to us that will, one of the last things is never, you know, never the end, but one of the last things available to us that can help you run better and more comfortably and maybe more efficiently. Um, so I'm not a big fan at all of changing strike patterns or biomechanics in general. Um, the data doesn't point to it. The research doesn't point to it, particularly with strike patterns. What I do try to do, I do this quite often, is, you know, I'll take folks for, I don't have a treadmill in my, in my gym, so I'll take folks for a run around the neighborhood and I'll watch them run. And while we're running or after, I'll give them some visual cues and some mental cues to practice. And we'll go out again and say, okay, for the next minute, I want you to practice this cue that we just talked about and then just let it go and then just run, right? And then in another minute, we'll bring the cue back in and just kind of cycle on and off. So I'll, I'll give people cues to see if we can get something closer to uh, more optimal mechanics for that person. I think the one thing I, I um think about or struggle with in, re in regards to like, should you change people's biomechanics? And I, I'm, I'm with you um, with the strike pattern because as we discussed, it kind of depends on speed for a large majority of people. So, you know, so, some of that just is a moot point. Like it doesn't matter. Yep. Um, but I know like there's a gentleman I see running around my neighborhood. I used to call him bouncy man. Uh, but I've, I've actually met him. His name's Aaron. He just lives down the street from me. And if I can demonstrate kind of what he does, he does this like up and down kind of jumpy thing as he runs. And now he runs two a days all the time. Seems fine. Like he doesn't seem to be injured. He's not doing anything. But like I look at him and I go, like you're wasting energy by all this like bouncing. Right. Like and go just could we make you faster by directing that forward instead of up and down? But then obviously the potential issue being that his body's adapted to that, his like tendons have adapted to that particular form, all those kind of things. And you get increased risk of injury when you start tweaking with it to that and putting loads where they're not used to being and have him try to maintain his regular volume. Um, so that's kind of like a, a personal, uh, I won't say pet peeve is not the right word, but just like, I don't know, interest. The other thing I think about, which is more in your realm, is like, um, say people have, this This is a phrase uh, my former coach, Barb Blinquist, um, would mention, she would say people have mom butt, which is when they're like sitting back, like almost like they're sitting down into a chair and running at the same time. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, basically, they're like, they're not utilizing their glutes. They're not ever going to have like a, a nice, strong, straight body line during that push off phase because their butt's basically sat down. Right. Like, and, and obviously, you're missing a lot of like power and stable, stabilization from a lack of activation of the glutes. Like, do you ever, do you mess with something like that? And then, so that's one. And then the other is if you have, a biomechanic which leads to repetitive injury do you try to adjust that right so let's let's take these as three separate cases okay. first first bouncy man whom whom we now know as aaron yes um 
it sounds like he can, you know, introduce some volume because he's doing two days and he's bouncing along and, and exactly like you said, his body seems to have adapted to it to where he is running two days. And yep. obviously he's doing marathons. He's doing yeah. fine. I'm not changing that. Right. I'm not changing that. And I think you hit on something really important is if I do decide to change it, where am I redistributing that load? Because I always tell my runners, the energy of running doesn't go away. This is physics. And if you mess with physics, all you're doing is pulling the load from one or two tissues and shifting them to others. And you might, in Aaron's case specifically, you might be shifting them to other tissues that aren't adapted to what you're asking them to do. So if he's trucking out marathons and is satisfied with what he's doing and how he's doing it, I'm not messing. I'm leaving that alone, even though it might on the surface look a little goofy and you're like, Ooh, I'm not touching it. Let him go. Let him go. I've got a buddy who he's like six, three, six, four. He regularly clocks off sub three marathons he actually ran the new york city marathon under three hours wearing a lobster costume and he barely leaves the ground barely it's almost like a shuffle it is impressive and i i wouldn't change a thing about his gait because he runs really well and mostly injury free so even though it looks a little odd why would i mess with that it works for him and his body's adapted to it um, in the case of mom, but I've never heard it called that, <laughs> but now, I, now keep in mind, this is coming from, she's two things. Number one, a mom, she's now, uh, in her, gosh, she just had a birthday. How old is she now? I don't know. We'll, we'll say in her forties now, she may, she may be a little older than that. I'm sure you can look it up, but also former world number one, uh, in triathlon. So she's all of these things. So it, it, and also a wonderful woman, she'll train anybody, whether you got mom, butt or not. So, it, it, so keep in mind who she is and kind of where that's coming from. For sure. For sure. I, I do try to retrain the mom, butt position. Okay. Um, because in that, in that space with your body doing that thing, thousands and thousands of steps per run, you are almost certainly setting yourself up for injury. Um, so I, I, you know, it very much depends on the in individual, um, in terms of what type of cues I'll give to try and help them out of that, or just into something that's more economical. And it probably takes a lot of time for their brain to be able to get there. Um, but I do, that is a person I'm going to try and gently coach away from that pattern. Right. And I say gently because they've chosen that pattern. Their body has chosen to be there for whatever reason. So it's something that their brain prefers. So if your brain, this is anyone with any pattern, if your brain prefers something, it is exceptionally difficult to teach it how to do that same thing another way, right? Think about eating. You know, I eat with my right hand. It would be a monstrous pain in the ass to teach myself to eat with my left hand exclusively same idea so it's hard to and it needs to be done gently so it's hard to coach that mom butt out but it's very doable and it, it probably should be done um, just because of the risk possible risk of injury that lead me to a, a final question before we get to our, our our usual wrap up um that makes me think about so thinking about aaron um formerly known to me as bouncy man if you've watched any of my other running form uh, videos on on the youtube channel i've you know previously referred to as, as bouncy man before I, I met him and talked to him um thinking about ryan or, or i had a friend who just and this is going to be getting to my point as a child just ran goofy as heck like i just i didn't understand what he was doing so you know, uh, at the time uh, when you, I, and again, if Mr. Talbot's still here, we're in college. This is 10 plus years ago now. Um, you know, we had uh, the big movement about barefoot shoes and changing biomechanics and low heel to toe drop and all that kind of stuff going on. And um, during that time, I picked up the idea about run like a child because 
most children, if you take their shoes off and just let them run, have pretty good biomechanics. Like you don't have to teach them good biomechanics. And then there's the kind of adversaries and shoes and shoes, okay, messed all those things up. So my question is, because you said, you know, so like adaptation, like in Aaron's case, he's got this, you know, kind of bouncy thing going on, but he's adapted to it. He's doing fine. He's happy with what he's doing. No problems. We shouldn't change it. Well, that comes with a lifetime of probably doing that. So should we try to encourage or mold children into a particular biomechanical form prior to a lifetime of, well, for lack of a better term, called maladaptation? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is a hefty question. Um, I think I need to chew on that for a second. No, you're fine. Um, well, I don't worry. If, if if you get it wrong, you're just going to destroy the lives of millions of children. It's not. It's no problem. <laughs> no, no pressure. Everybody's hips are going to be dysplastic. Right. Great. Um. So sh the question is: Should we attempt to kind of mold children into like an optimal into form? A proper biomechanics? Uh, if you're not on the video version, I'm I'm doing the rabbit ears. Yeah. Um. Again, I would probably say no. I think let them run how they run. If there's something that looks harmful, and in fact they've incurred injury that matches up with that mechanic, then yeah, it's worth editing. But one of the, I, I use this as an example, and I'm, I can't for life me remember her name. Uh, she's a high school cross country runner. She's a phenom. This this gal is clocking off uh, like sub 16 5Ks like it's nothing. And she is absolutely crushing it. And she runs like Bambi on ice. It, it Like her knees are knocking all the way home. And it is just as a biomechanist and as a PT, it's a little bit painful to watch. But it's also kind of amazing because holy cow, she's crazy fast. And she has these interesting mechanics. And she's okay. So part of that is just natural human development, right? Our, our hips and femurs are doing all, and pelvises are all doing weird stuff as we develop. They're rotating and they're shifting and doing all sorts of things. So to try and coach those optimal mechanics, I think a person is better served until their body is fully developed so that you know what their anatomy is and their anatomy is concrete right after like 22 or 25 years of age because some people do you know finish developing that late um i don't know how much you mess with like someone like this gal and i wish i could remember her name but someone like this young gal uh who's clocking these sub 16 5ks um would you mess with that? No, probably not because she's 16, 17, 18 and her hips and femurs are probably still anatomically rotating. So what good is it going to do to coach against her anatomy that's still changing? Probably not much, right? Wait until she's finished developing and then if she still has some of these interesting mechanics that you can easily look up on YouTube, if that's still a thing, then maybe you can coach her a little bit differently in terms of uh, her mechanics. Um, but again, then it becomes a question of, well, have you been getting injured? No, maybe your body has adapted really well to your now concrete anatomy. And this is for her probably three or five years down the road. Um, so to your question of should we coach kids uh form to be optimal i think if a coach has a good understanding of that their uh, their athlete's anatomy then they can maybe embark on a little bit of coaching form to economize things a little bit um but if a coach isn't certain about anatomy and if they're fully formed and, and whatever you know, maybe you, you dial it back to just giving them mental cues instead of saying, do this, not that.
kind of thing and then trying to like fully coach out a different motor program entirely just give them a little nugget and say try this see how it goes and let's see if it makes you a more economical runner so there's you know there's options there about how you could approach it well now that we've i guess saved the lives of millions of running children <laughs> um it's a good good note to wrap up on so um for you the listener you probably know if you listen to my other episodes but each season of the show i have a question i ask all of my guests um this season's question has been an emphasis because uh it was suggested to me by a, a business friend of mine uh, because not enough of us do this so i put i've been putting a lot of people on the spot with this question uh this year but i think it's worth worth the emphasis so the question i'll ask you ryan um, that i've asked all my guests this year is how do you celebrate your wins how do I celebrate my wins? The first thing I do is I smile and I try to pause and appreciate the win for what it is um, and not allowing myself to get too high about it because there's going to be a low at some point. So you got to mitigate just a little bit. So I smile and try and laugh and appreciate the win for what it is. Um, then following that, it's usually either bourbon or a beer to celebrate the win. So if that's on a patio on a 60 degree day in January and in, in Denver, so be it. Um, that's or not in Denver. So don't, don't go there. Or not in Denver <laughs> all the time. We live in South park. Don't come here. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I celebrate my wins. I try not to get too high or too low. Um, my most recent win was leaving my corporate job to go to work for myself. And that was a, a huge, huge win for me and could not have done it without the love and support of my wife and son. So that felt like a massive win. And I was able to kind of pause and appreciate the win for what it was. Um, and then I had a nice glass of bourbon and called it a day. And, you know, the next day was Tuesday. So carry on. That's fair enough. Um, Ryan, if people want to get in touch, see what you're up to, get advice, any of that kind of stuff, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. Long Run Physio uh, is, is the easiest place to find me. Uh, my website, longrunphysio.com. I'm trying to be more active with the blogs now that I have more time on my hands. I'm, I'm trying to create just a little bit more. So look forward to more of that. And if you have any specific questions, either reach out to me on Instagram, again, Long Run Physio, or just send me an email, longrunphysio at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer any questions you've got. Awesome. Thanks for hanging out with me, Ryan. Well, thanks, Jesse. I appreciate it, man.